I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Anxiety Bites podcast, and I am your host, Jen Kirkman. I'm so excited about our guest today, Dan Harris. I am such a fan. I love his podcast, 10% Happier, where he interviews people about mostly meditation, but a lot of other things in the realm of meditation and and also anxiety. And his books, 10% Happier, How I Tamed the Voice in My Head, and his second book, Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. Now, this is not a meditation episode, however. I really wanted to talk to Dan more about his story because, you know, Dan's got solutions for us all day long. We do get to some of them in this interview, but I also think sometimes stories are really an important part of our recovery with anxiety. You know, a lot of times people will say, oh, well, you know, I do this, I do that for my anxiety. But since Dan is a mere mortal, like the rest of us, he's not a neuroscientist. He didn't set out in life to study anxiety or meditation or mindfulness or learning how to be less angry or learning how to be less type A. He was an ABC news anchor for decades. He was an adrenaline junkie. He was a, uh, at one time, a uh, drug user, competitive, you know, all, all kinds of things that I wanted to hear what his story was. What's it like to be so type A that you're all jammed up inside and you end up having a panic attack on air on ABC news, which he did. And we, we have linked to that panic attack in the show notes. And I'm not doing that to torture Dan. He talks about it in his book, 10% Happier. He's happy to talk about it. But I just wanted people to know, you know, successful people can have panic attacks. They can have anxiety. I mean, I know everybody knows this, but just maybe there's one person going, I don't believe it. I think he got successful. And that's what made him ultimately stop using drugs. And, you know, that's what helped him with his meditation. But And it's like, nope, he was successful already but something wasn't working. And he knew he had to start to look at his anxiety, his neurosis. So I wanted to talk about how panic attacks can come out of the blue when they start almost later in life, what it's like to be a type A person who was always afraid of losing their edge 
And does getting help make you lose your edge? Does starting to meditate every day, does being mindful of your own thoughts, does that make you less able to succeed? I mean, in Dan's case, the answer is no. And he has now transitioned out of working for ABC News to doing full-time, you know, the media company he created, 10% Happier. There's an app, there's the podcast, all of that is linked to in the show notes. And I have a special affinity for Dan because he is also a Gen X person from Boston. He grew up in the town next to me. We didn't know each other, but I just like his no bullshit approach to the way that he tries to help others. He doesn't claim he's figured it all out. He doesn't claim he's fixed and he doesn't talk in a whispery voice. Now, if you naturally have a whispery voice, go off. I love that for you but he doesn't adopt any fake guru persona. So I hope you enjoy my talk with Dan as much as I enjoy chatting to him. Again, I could talk to him about a million different things. And at the end of the interview, I I thought, oh God, I didn't, I wish there was more. I could have let him just go on and on more about, you know, more solutions. But again, I do think sometimes we need to hear a really good backstory and just hear about how someone had no idea how to get help, and then it sort of just organically presented itself to him. And I know there's a part of the interview where I really don't need to go into it, but (laughs) I egg Dan on to tell a story that he wrote about in his book, 10% Happier, about meeting Eckhart Tolle, who claims, Mr. Tolle does, that he never has any negative thoughts or negative emotions anymore. He had a complete enlightenment, and I just find that hard to believe. I'm not saying he's lying. I just don't comprehend it. And those kind of people, they don't uh, help me. Because as, as Dan Harris says, he's just trying to be 10% happier. And sometimes I think it can be intimidating when someone says they've got all the answers and look at them, they've never had a bad feeling again. Now, what happens when you try to use some of their tools and you don't reach enlightenment? I, I honestly, I don't know. I, om- I almost feel like people who, if, if this Eckhart Tolle really has reached enlightenment, I think he should not tell us because <laughs> we're not ever going to get there. He's probably the one. I don't know. This, this, I'm just rambling at this point, but talking to Dan made me very happy because what he does on his podcast is exactly what I would want to do with this one, Anxiety Bites, is just real people, real talk about anxiety and nobody's here to be a guru, and whisper. Although I am wearing a long flowing robe right now, you just can't see it. Anyway, I hope you enjoy my chat with Dan Harris as much as I did. See you on the other side. Welcome to another episode of Anxiety Bites. My guest today is Dan Harris. You may know him from his hugely successful podcast, 10% Happier. He also has an app called 10% Happier. We'll talk about that. You also may know him from watching the news on ABC. I'm so happy he's here. And Dan, thank you again for being on my show. My pleasure. I, I don't think I've seen you since you came on my show. It's been years. It's And thank you for letting me come on your fantastic show before, um, you know, I was just, I'm just an idiot. I'm just an idiot comedian who meditates and you, <laughs> you let me on there somehow. <laughs> well, you're in good company. I'm just an idiot reporter who meditates. So it's all good. Well, you know, I was going to tell you that I think comedians and reporters have a lot in common in the way that we approach our audience. So we do this invoking that invisible third party critic in order to kind of get people out of the route answers that they always give, because we're sitting there going, no, I know someone is listening, going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what you mean. There's no wrong way to meditate. Like you say that, not you, but a person says that. And it's like, I want I almost come from the negative when I'm interviewing and and when I'm doing comedy, that's how I keep the audience from heckling me is that I know what they're going to say before they say it. I'll say it first. So I think you may appreciate this interview and that I, I will keep, you know, digging further for, you know, what exactly does that mean? Um, and I've been really excited to have you on because you're one of my favorite. I mean, I see you as a, a, a self-help guru. I know you would not say that about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but you are around my age. I think you're a little older, just a couple of years. And uh, we're from basically the same town in Massachusetts, yeah, yes. one next to each other. You've got this Gen X, no bullshit. By the way, if you want to, you can swear on my podcast. Nice. <laughs> so let's start here. Um, you had 
a panic attack on the air in 2004. And that is sort of one of the things that started you on your, I guess, journey, sorry for that word, of trying to figure out what the hell is wrong with you and how you can, I guess, A, just not have panic attacks on air. But one of the things that was interesting, and we'll link it in the show notes, you can all watch Dan have a panic attack. (laughs) What's so interesting as someone who has panic disorder, and I've panicked as well, it's not that bad. You know, you're not freaking out. You did end the segment. You were just reading the news, right? You ended the segment really early. And it just looks like you can't breathe. It looks more to me, to the uninitiated, like an asthma attack. Mm. So if you could take us through, and and we'll get into your whole history and what caused it and all that, but take us through that day, 2004, you're on the air. What happened and how did it feel in your body? Yeah, I mean, that's, you're right. If you look at the video, a lot of people feel like it doesn't, it doesn't look that bad. I mean, that's what happens when a robot slash sociopath has a panic attack. It just doesn't look that bad. <laughs> that's, you thought of yourself as a sociopath back then? Yeah, <laughs> only facetiously. Um, yes, yeah. I was in my mid-30s. I had been on an anchorman, really, since I was 22. So I had a lot of experience with, you know, keeping my shit together on, uh, in tough circumstances. And I had covered wars. And so I... I, I I was able to hold it together. But, you know, if if I didn't have the main hosts of the show, Charlie Gibson and Diane Sawyer, if I didn't have the opportunity to throw back to them, because I was in I was the person who came on at the top of the hour and read a few headlines on Good Morning America. If I didn't have the opportunity to say back to you. Yeah, it would have been horrible. I would have probably ripped the mic off and run away or started to cry. I don't know. But yeah, that was that was the out. so when you say what was back the question to you, again? I, fe- I, f- I okay. forgot the question. Okay. When you say back to you, um, for anyone listening, that means they have to then take back the broadcast. So yes. you you didn't read all of the headlines. You read one of them and then went, oh, back to you, right? I read, I think I soldiered through two or three out of six or seven that I was supposed to read. And you okay. can hear that my like throat is tightening and I'm yeah. having trouble breathing and I'm gulping for air. I mean, if it's not good. So what I was wondering is, you know, what did that feel like in your body when it was happening? What did it feel like in my body? Uh, terrible. It's like having a heart attack. You know, okay. you're, you're, the way it goes is, and you know this, Jen, because you've unfortunately had, had panic yourself. The yeah. way it goes is one thing starts it and, the, and, uh, and then the other thing makes it worse. So it could be that your mind starts telling stories like, oh man, you just screwed that up or oh, 5 million people are watching this or whatever. And you start to have psychological anxiety and then your body kicks in and starts to go into mutiny mode where your heart is racing, your lungs seize up, your, your palms get sweaty, your mouth dries up. So what it's one or the other starts it. So yeah. your body, you might notice your body first and then your mind starts freaking out. But w- then you get into a vicious cycle because the more your body's uh, in mutiny mode, the more your mind goes into freak out mode and that makes the body worse. And then that makes the mind worse and on and on and on. Um, and it's it's really anxiety, which many of us have felt either in a chronic way or in a in a in an acute or, or circumstantial way. Yeah. You might just call that fear. It's it's that on steroids. It's our evolutionary evolutionarily wired fight or flight impulse being triggered in inappropriate circumstances. We are wired to have this as a life-saving mechanism when we're confronted with the tiger. But now we are both the tiger and the person being confronted by the tiger. We are making this happen to ourselves. That's interesting. And I'm going to get to that in a minute, the the very keyword inappropriate um, reaction. So yeah, in your book, 10% Happier, which I mean, it's so great. Everyone get this book. I'm holding it up. This is not a video podcast, but um, (laughs) what I love about 10% Happier is it it really takes everyone through, you know, your life as a journalist. And and you said in the uh, intro that you wanted to name the book. Initially, the voice in my head is an asshole. (laughs) And I love that. And I think in that moment, your voice in your head was, this is one instance where the voice in your head was being an asshole. It was not at all. you know, looking around rationally and telling you what was actually happening. It was just making up lies, almost as though your mind was a competing anchor who wanted your job. Yes, yes, well <laughs> wanted said. Wanted you to fail. So when, one thing that you do talk about in the book, um, when you, you talk about this experience is you call it air hunger. And, you know, in all my years of panicking and 
getting help for it. I actually had never heard air hunger. Can you tell us about what that means? It's a bit, I use it as a, as a bit of a double entendre. The, the phrase, I only heard it because I happen to be married to a pulmonologist, a lung doctor. Um, oh my God, and- that is, you, I, you are so lucky. I mean, anyone with anxiety and panic, that is the person to be married to. So jealous, <laughs> yes. better than a therapist. Uh, yes, but she, she's also a pretty good therapist, as it turns out. Um, <laughs> to, to, she married a, a neurotic, so she she better be. Um, so she, she I heard this expression through her talking about her work where she would often intubate people or, you know, uh, she was a, a pulmonologist who worked in, in ICUs for, for much, much of the early part of our marriage. So air hunger meant you couldn't breathe and mm. uh, you needed to be uh, put on mechanical ventilation often. And I also use it as a double entendre because it was about uh, this, the time during which I had the panic attack was a time where I had sort of ambition on steroids and I was mm. hungry to be on the air all the time. I was really competing to, to uh, you know, beat out my colleagues and get the big story and get the big assignments and get the job as an anchorman. And I'd spent a lot of time in war zones Um before, and in fact, I think that's really what precipitated the panic attack. I had spent a lot of time in war zones and come home and and had some psychological problems and then self-medicated with recreational drugs. And uh, all of that, I think, really led to me having a panic attack. Yeah, it's interesting with a panic attack that it never really is about anything that's happening in that moment, right? It's always kind of this buildup where like you almost can't take it anymore. It's the straw that breaks the camel's back. It just, it's not really about anything that happened that day, but it could be the buildup of the drugs in your system, even if you hadn't taken any drugs, you know, weeks up to the panic attack. But, and that's what I find so interesting is, you know, so this panic attack was in 2004 and according to your book, so right after 9-11, which obviously was the biggest jolt of anxiety that America had had in a while, especially New Yorkers, you're in New York and you get sent to Tora Bora. You're like, yeah, let's do this. I'm going right to where bin Laden is hiding. I mean, (laughs) most people would not do that. And so it's funny to me that to the uninitiated, if they were on a quiz show and they said, tell me when Dan Harris had a panic attack, was it when he was in Afghanistan and Tora Bora after 9-11? Or was it when he was in the comfort of the ABC studios three years later? Most people would guess in Afghanistan. So were you, in a way, do you think an adrenaline junkie as well at a certain point, like trying to feel alive when you went to get those news stories? Or was it really just a work ambition? Like, did you feel weirdly at ease in those war zones? Because it's almost like there's no time to panic. It's just survival and adrenaline. Yes, what you said is correct. Um, I was an adrenaline junkie, probably still am in some ways, so not as much as I used to be. Um I didn't really go into, I, I started covering wars in my early thirties. I, you know, I had been a local news reporter for my twenties and, you know, there was, there was no combat to speak of. Um, but I liked the excitement of my job as a, as a local news reporter. And then when I got to ABC news, nine 11 happened. And obviously that was the biggest story on the planet, uh, initially Afghanistan and then Iraq. And I wanted to be there. And I, Initially, it was motivated by a combination of curiosity, idealism, you know, really feeling that we needed to bear witness to what was happening at the tip of the spear, and ambition. Yeah. What really kicked into high gear once I got into war zones, something I had never experienced before, was that how much I loved the adrenaline. It mm-hmm. really feels like you are somewhere you are not supposed to be. And it's very exciting. And your existential crises can can evaporate because uh, you know what you're doing is important. It's really exciting. And you get on TV while doing it. And so I got really hooked. And the problems came when I would come home mm. in the midst of this. And even though I still had a pretty exciting job as a you know budding news anchor, it didn't compare to being in Afghanistan or being in Iraq and... Yeah, Diane uh, Sawyer's that, not shooting bullets by your head. No, in the ABC sometimes studios. through her eyes, um, yeah, but sure. not, not, <laughs> not, uh, not literally. And I got depressed in those periods of time, even though I didn't know I was depressed. And that's right. what led to the drug abuse. It's so funny to me, as a child from Boston, that you even tried cocaine because I thought we'd all been successfully brainwashed by Len the Bias. by yes. Len Bias. Yes, that was. Yeah. Um, 
one of the Boston Celtics, a young recruit, and he OD'd um, from a cocaine overdose. And, you know, I remember my middle school gym teachers, we shuttled us all into the gymnasium and said, Len Bias tried cocaine once, everybody, and died. And we were like, oh, my God. And we never, and it was height of the 80s, just say no. I mean, I never tried cocaine. Even when I learned that that wasn't quite true, that it wasn't his first time trying it, we'll never try it. So I, I had the same really <laughs> I had the same reaction. I mean, I was terrified. I mean, I was 32, 33, 34, somewhere pretty old to be trying cocaine for the first time. Yeah. Um, but I was desperate. Uh, I was super depressed and feeling um, I was feeling logy all the time. I felt physically bad all the time. Uh, and I was kind of lonely. A lot of my friends had moved away. And then I, I, you know, my real best friends were when I was covering war and I, I couldn't be with them all the time. And I was with a buddy one night and he offered me some. And I don't know why I just said yes. By the way, I don't recommend cocaine. Um, I think it's it is addictive. Um, mm -hmm. It probably doesn't kill people on the first use um, uh, all that often. But but it's it is addictive. And um, the the crash is really brutal. And so I'm not like. I'm not puritanically anti-drug, but I'm not out mm -hmm. here recommending you do cocaine. And stopping doing cocaine was very helpful yeah. to me in terms of not having panic attacks anymore. Anxiety Bites will be right back after a quick little message from one of our sponsors. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up <laughs> you couldn't believe it from iheart podcasts it's like the police knew who he was before they got here a story about money power and corruption the medical school dean at usc was leading a secret double life he's breathing right now yes he's absolutely breathing i'm a doctor actually there's no way that that guy's a doctor i'm paul pringle and i'm an investigative reporter for the la times this is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels. A story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. 
Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Let's talk about when you started to get into meditation. So according to your book, you started to interview self-help gurus, anything from a Deepak Chopra to, you know, more snake oil salesmen, Christian evangelical types. So you were looking for answers, but making it part of your job in a way. You had that ability to (laughs) say, this is what, this is the field I want to go into now. It was, it was an incredible stroke of luck that I, post-panic attack, kind of was trying to figure out what to do with my mind and my life. First thing I did is went to therapy and quit doing drugs. And that was really, really helpful. And and then I had this ability um, to go interview interesting people. Um, I did, I I had been assigned by Peter Jennings, um, my then boss, to cover faith and spirituality, which I didn't want to do because I'm, I'm a, agnostic from the People's Republic of Massachusetts and was not particularly. (laughs) And your parents are scientists. So it's not like you were this like religious household, right? Correct. Uh, I did have a bar mitzvah, but I I like I always joke that I only did that for the money. Uh, So I I was not at all interested in spirituality. Then uh, over time, I used that gig to start interviewing uh, self-help gurus, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, through that, I found meditation. So, and I'm going to take us back through that story from the Eckhart Tolle to the Mark Epstein, but did your therapist say anything helpful in the sense of what to do about panic and anxiety, or did you find that you you needed more? Like, were you doing cognitive behavior therapy for panic attacks? Yeah, so he was really great. He had a couple of mechanisms. One was don't do cocaine anymore. Uh, the other was he gave me some drugs that were helpful, um, uh, prescribed drugs. Yeah. One of them is is called beta blockers, um, which for anybody who's got uh, stage fright or performance anxiety of any sort, or is, or if you're just going into a stressful meeting with your boss and you're worried about panicking, beta blockers are a non-narcotic prescription uh, class of drugs that can uh, stop your heart from beating too fast mm. uh, and block the release of uh, cortisol, I believe. I'm not a doctor, so if I got that wrong, I apologize. But anyway, he, those were a couple of things he did. He tried to do cognitive behavioral therapy uh, around my fear about being on TV, but it, it didn't work because you can't, I know when I'm live and when I'm not. So you can put a TV camera in front of me, but if I am uh, not, a, if I'm aware that it's not beamed out right now to 5 million people, I'm not going to get scared. Uh, then uh, just a lot of also talk therapy, you know, just I, I had done it when I was a kid, yeah. uh, but I had not done much as an adult. And so really seeing this guy once or twice a week for years and years and years just helped me live in a wiser way to start untangling. Why did I get myself into this situation in the first place? Well, I heard in an interview that you talked about your dad had a saying and that you realize now he wasn't saying it like this is how it should be, but he was trying to make you feel better. What, what was that saying? He had an expression was the 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 price of security is insecurity, which is actually quite a nice fr- phrasing. Um, and I took that and ran with it and, and really believed that any success that I was achieving in my professional life was directly correlated to the intensity of my anxiety. I just I thought I needed hair on fire anxiety in order to succeed. Right. Uh, we can talk about why I don't think this is true now. Um, yeah, but please. but but my dad later told me um, that he didn't make that up to encourage me to worry. He made that up to make me feel better about the fact that I was already worrying and I was a very nervous kid. Yeah, these are the ways that parents don't even know they're influencing their kids. You know, everyone wants to be the perfect parent. I'm not going to screw my kid up. And it's like, but even when you're helping them, you might say something that just because of their own wiring, they take totally the wrong way. 
And it just, it makes me laugh because we just have so little control over how we take things, how, how people take what we say. It's fascinating that you had that realization years later. So I want to talk about your meditation and then I want to jump back because I'm very obsessed with your um, interaction with Eckhart Tolle, but I I think we need to (laughs) start with, so basically someone gives you an Eckhart Tolle book, you read it, but it doesn't really connect with you. We'll go back into detail about that. But then you find Mark Epstein and his book, Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart. I'm obsessed with Mark Epstein. What happened there that made you say, all right, I'll, I'll try this, this meditation. Tell me the journey. I keep saying journey to you. I hate that. <laughs> Are you going to ask me about, about my aura next? I, well, I don't have to ask. I see it. I see your aura. It's great. <laughs> I can't see it because I hid self-view, but I'm sure it's here. <laughs> um, I, so Dr. Mark Epstein, totally obsession worthy. He's a, he is a, a psychiatrist who lives and works in Manhattan, has written a whole series of beautiful books about the overlap between Freudian psychology and Buddhism. He was not my psychiatrist. I found him because my then fiance and now baby mama, uh, Bianca, gave me one of his books, okay. uh, the aforementioned Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart. And it was my first exposure to Buddhism. And I was really impressed uh, that that the there are so many diagnoses that the Buddha made of the human condition. But one of them is that we have this racing mind, some sometimes referred to as the monkey mind, which yeah. is le- leaping all over the place and from one thing to the next, randomly often, uh, grabbing onto things that will not last in a universe that is characterized by impermanence and entropy and lurching from one hit of pleasant experience, one vacation, one slice of cake, one latte to the next and never fully satisfied. And that just, the, when I heard that description, I was like, oh yeah, that is, that is, that is true. And that yeah. explains why I went off to war zones uh, and without thinking about the consequences, came home, got depressed, was insufficiently self-aware to know it, and then blindly self-medicated and, and it all blew up on my face on national television. So it was very satisfying to read that. And the Buddha had something to do about it, which was in stark contrast to Eckhart Tolle, who I know we'll talk about later, yeah, who yeah. has a similar diagnosis. But as a friend of mine has joked, Eckhart Tolle is correct, but not useful. The Buddha is correct and <laughs> yeah. very useful. And now for people listening, you don't have to actually become a Buddhist, right? To incorporate. I mean, he really is like very practical. You know, I know that there are people who have this as their religion and there's all kinds of problems with us white people appropriating and go, well, I'll use a little of this, but not that. But but just for, you know, the sake of someone listening and go, oh, well, I'm, I'm not a Buddhist. It's like, well, we're just talking honestly about um, the practicality of it. It's like, not even about love everyone, but do no harm. You know, it's a lot of like, not as, as you say, gooey, as people think, it's a lot more practical of like, do less this. And it's like, oh, wow, that's challenging to people. Because I think type A people want to do, how do I do this? And and some of the answers of the Buddha are, you don't. You are absolutely right that you don't have to become a Buddhist or anything like that. The Buddha in his own time was, there were no Buddhists. There were just, you know, people who followed him and did his meditation techniques, ranged from people who were ordained as monks and nuns, all the way up to wealthy merchants, to kings. It basically had a, a philosophy and a set of practices, both for seated meditation and for your life, your free range living that were designed to make you less miserable, to make you happier. And um, I would call myself a Buddhist, but only in the sense that I do Buddhism the same way I would call myself a journalist. The Buddha clearly said, you don't have to take anything I say on face value. You don't have to believe anything just because I said it. Try it out for yourself. There's no creation myth in Buddhism. There's no, he's not a god. He was just a guy. Um, Now, there are some claims in there that I, I can't, verify and I don't particularly believe in because I just Mm -hmm. don't have evidence for them, including reincarnation, et cetera, et cetera. But you can take or leave that stuff. And you can practice Buddhism if you're a Christian, a Jew, a a Muslim, an agnostic, an atheist. doesn't matter. It's a set of practices. You can do some of them, not all of them, whatever. And yes, there are people who practice Buddhism 
as a religion. And I think that's quite beautiful, but I'm not one of them, but yeah. I do Buddhism on the regular and take it very, very seriously. So it's not that mindfulness and Buddhism are totally interchangeable, but kind of in that sense, like mindfulness is one of the one incredible of the insights made by the Buddha. So what we've seen in recent years is that Buddhism is this vast, rich, you know, treasury of kind of insights into what makes us tick. Yeah. One of the things the Buddha talked about was mindfulness, which is basically just another way of saying self-awareness, the yeah. awareness of this voice in your head that is an asshole. And that awareness allows you not to be so owned by it. You might notice, oh yeah, I'm having this ridiculous urging to eat a sleeve of Oreos or to say something that's going to ruin the next 72 hours of my marriage, but I don't have to act on it. That's mindfulness. Just the ability to see what's happening between your ears in any given moment without without taking the bait and acting blindly. Um, that's one very important chunk of many, many incredible things uh, the Buddha talked about. Mindfulness has been taken out. And I think there is some disagreement about this in, in, the, in the Buddhist world, but I'm pretty partisan in saying that I think it's a really good thing that it's been taken out of a religious context, studied yeah. in labs and taught in a secular way. And that has allowed for this explosion of scientific research that shows that mindfulness can have lots of tantalizing health benefits. Uh, it's now being taught in foster homes and in prisons and in businesses and in locker rooms and in uh, dressing rooms uh, uh, in LA. And so it, this secularization, which again has been a little bit controversial and we can talk about that if you want, I think yeah. has led to a really interesting uh, mainstreaming of this practice, which heretofore had been kind of limited to religious communities. Yeah, I think the only thing that makes me want to barf is when people who don't understand that it is scientific, has a psychological bent to it, like Mark Epstein's writings. And, you know, you've got some influencer on Instagram who's like mindful and they're turning it into some hippie dippy thing. I mean, that makes me crazy. Me too. We'll be right back. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. She's breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name is Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. 
It's always the feeling when you're getting ready. You know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. What does it look like when the type A news guy starts meditating? Do you <laughs> totally do it? I know there's no wrong way to meditate, but do you approach it like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to listen to them about how I should approach it. I know how I'm going to win it. Like, were you like that when you started? <laughs> By the way, there is a wrong way to meditate. If you sit down and affirmatively decide to like plan lunch, that's not meditation. That's planning lunch. That's um, true. And, and I know you don't like this either when people go, Cooking is my meditation. It's like, no, that's cooking. Meditation, like, show some respect. It's an actual thing. <laughs> like, it you is. might be in the zone when you're cooking, but you're not meditating. I think you can be mindful while you cook. In other words, you can sure. be mindful while you're doing anything because mindfulness just means paying attention to what you're doing in a way that allows you to see the workings of your mind just for a few nanoseconds at a time. Yeah without being owned by it. So you can be chopping onions and just really tuning into what's the smell? What are my eyes stinging? What's the sensation? What are the sensations in my arm as I move the knife up and down? I think it's quite hard to do that if you don't have a foundation of seated practice where you yeah. are really doing a kind of workout. So to let, I think I should answer your, your the question you actually asked me, which yeah. is how do you meditate? How did I just do it when I was first introduced to it? There are lots of kinds of meditation. Um, I was drawn to something called mindfulness meditation, which is derived from Buddhism, but has been thoroughly secularized. The practice is very simple. The cliche is that it's simple, but not easy. The practice is you sit quietly somewhere, bring your full attention to the feeling of your breath coming in and going out. And then every time you get distracted, which will happen a million times, you start again and again and again. And a lot of people think when they get distracted, that is proof that they're meditating incorrectly. But in mm -hmm. fact, noticing you've become distracted is proof you are meditating correctly because the whole game here is to develop mindfulness, is to see that the voice in your head is often an asshole. And when you have that self-awareness, you are less owned by the voice. So the whole goal is you sit, you notice your breath, for a few nanoseconds and you're immediately taken away, you're starting to plan a homicide or, you know, plan some uh, expletive filled speech you're going to deliver to your boss. And then you notice it. And you're like, oh, yeah, OK, that's that's anger. That's that's a, maybe that's some ancient pattern I've been running in my mind since I was five. Blow it a kiss and you go back to the breath over and over and over again. And that's like a bicep curl for your brain. And this yeah. is what shows up on the brain scans. When you look at the brains of people who meditate, they are different. The area of the brain associated with focus changes. Mm -hmm. The area of the brain associated with stress changes. The area of the brain associated with compassion, self-awareness, these change. And that is really revolutionary here that you can change your brain and by extension, your mind. And, you know, we these qualities, these mental qualities that many of us have been carrying around stories about how they're set, they're factory settings that are unalterable. Mm. Actually, no, these are skills that can be trained. It doesn't mean it's going to happen overnight, hence 10% yeah. happier. But these are things that you can get better and better and better at over time. Well, you know, a big thing for me and my anxiety, learning about anxiety and, and 
you know, the things that caused my panic attacks was one of them, a lot of negative self-talk, but not even conscious of it, right? So Mm -hmm. when I sit down and notice my thoughts, it wasn't just that, oh, I kind of already knew these thoughts were there, but I'm um, giving them attention. It was like, I didn't even know that my, Mm -hmm. I call it like the CNN news crawl that you see on the outside (laughs) of the buildings in Manhattan. Like that news crawl was just, sorry, I should have said ABC. That that was um, constantly, you're no good. You're, you know, all terrible things. And negative self-talk can lead to so much anxiety. Um, It can lead to panic attacks. And, you know, a lot of people that are perfectionists have anxiety and panic. And so sitting down and noticing your thoughts is, like you said, you they won't own you anymore. And that is, I think that should be very attractive to type A people. Like, you don't want your thoughts owning you. Like, you know, people with anxiety, they long for control. You tell them what to do to gain control. Well, not that, you know, <laughs> but, <laughs> but. um, It's beautiful what you said. I'm sorry to interrupt because yeah. I want to, I want to give you credit. I want to give you a gold star because the seeing of this heretofore hidden obnoxious news ticker is the point of meditation, or at least one of the big points. And and that's a huge victory. And for so many people, they get caught up on this. They they see that this is happening and they feel like they're failed meditators because they should be sitting down and, you know, it's like Calgon, take me away. Or I I, I need the beatific Buddha half smile that I see on the statues outside the airport massage places. That's not the way it's going to go. The way it's going to go is what Jen just described is you're going to sit and you're going to see like, yeah, this is what your life is about which is a lot of, you know, do I need a haircut? Where do gerbils run wild? Why are you such a failure? Why does your brother-in-law make more than you? Blah, blah, blah. That is what's happening on a moment-to-moment basis in your mind, most likely. And if you don't see it, those thoughts are like tiny little dictators that you act out reflexively. When you do see it, you have a choice to respond wisely to stuff rather Mm. than reacting blindly. Right. And of course, you know, your reactions change over time with meditation practice every day. And so this is this, I've been dying to tell you this story. It's not a long story, but I just, I, it's like, you know, when you know the perfect person to tell something to, cause you want them to get mad for you. This is, I need you to react correctly to the story. <laughs> <laughs> I know you will. So I think, you know, I think you relate to this, that like, you're not having anxiety panic every day, but that stuff could come up. Right. So I have situations where I could still have a panic attack. One is airplanes. I'm not afraid to fly, but just every once in a while, my defenses are down. I'm tired. I start to feel the physical sensations of panic. I have my dissolvable clonopin on me. If that happens, I also have my tools and techniques. I do both. Okay, great. The other thing that I just have not mastered yet is a fear of heights, like elevators and tall buildings. Um, and when I am in New York City and I take meetings, I obviously find out what floor it's on. And I do a whole thing that morning. I don't have caffeine. I do extra meditation. I do take take medication hours earlier. And I actually talk to the people that are coming to the meeting with me about, here's what you should say to me when I'm panicking the elevator. Here's what not to say. It's a whole thing. I have to prepare. And I've learned how to take care of myself and ask for what I need. So I blindly go to a pitch meeting, ironically pitching a TV show about a teenage girl with anxiety to this network in LA. And, you know, we don't have tall buildings here. There's one building in Universal City that's tall. I, I never go in it, never been in it. That's where the meeting is. I, bl- I just don't even pay attention. I get there. It's on the 40th floor. Oof. I have one minute before the meeting starts. I was jacked on caffeine, ready to give my one hour pitch. And I couldn't. I said, I can't. I said to my manager and her assistant, I can't go up. And they said, was there anything we can do? And I said, listen, the, the stuff that needed to be done to take care of myself is too late. But if you could call up and have them shut those blinds, um, if you guys could say this, not that to me in the elevator. But before I even gave them what they could say, they were saying all the wrong things. I was panicking more. I took my dissolvable clonopin. And as you said in your book once, um, it just cut right through. The terror cut right through. There, no drug could stop this. And I, I was like air hungry, couldn't breathe, couldn't breathe. Mm. And I said, well, we're pitching a show about anxiety. That's what this network wanted. They, they're very big into mental health, blah, blah, blah. And there was a beautiful coffee shop in the lobby. So maybe we just asked them to come down and we pitch here, you know, yeah. I mean, it was a, there's no reason they couldn't come down. So these young executives come down and I said, I'm really grateful to you guys. And I said, everything I just said to you, I said, I normally 
I, I, I never panic, but when I do, it's because I wasn't prepared and I didn't know I was going to be, you know, whole thing. And this one guy goes, do you meditate? And I said, yeah. And he goes, <laughs> he goes, yeah, I used to panic, but I just started meditating. I've never panicked again. So yeah, you should just meditate more. And I was like, I want you to explode right here. <laughs> and like, I was so angry because I was like, then he has never, he's either never panicked or he's never meditated. This is not true, right? Uh, I'm ha- I hope for his sake that it is true. I'm happy for him <laughs> if it's true. God bless, God bless. I still, I've been doing it for, I don't know, 12 years or something like that. And I still retain the capacity to definitely have anxiety daily. Yeah. Um, not not necessarily crippling anxiety, but low level anxiety. I worry about stuff that's just kind of how I'm wired. And if you put me in the right situation, I could definitely panic. I'm claustrophobic. If you put me in an MRI without an, enough preparation, absolutely, I could have a panic attack. I don't think meditation is a panacea. I yeah. think it makes me much more, I think it makes both of us much less likely to panic or to have anxiety. And it gives us tools to deal with it when those things come up. So I hope it's true for that young executive, um, but it's not true for a lot of people. Well, I also think the one mistake he made being like, Mr. I love anxiety and helping people is you just shamed me, you know, like that's not how we talk to people. Like a real meditator does not say that, you know, would, 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 would never go. I used to have this. It's never happened again. That the Dalai Lama wouldn't say that, you know? Um, right. And so it takes he, me... He's probably yeah. using one of my competitor apps, you know, that that's probably the problem. <laughs> well, it takes me to your story about, about Eckhart Tolle, and then, you know, we'll wrap up, and I, I want to talk about your app. In your book, you talk about meeting the Dalai Lama, who, you know, everyone I've read who's met him, it's like they, they ask, you know, you asked him about, you know, stopping the mind, and does he still get angry? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he's always just very, like, whenever I read about him, he's like, yeah, 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 don't be stupid. Of course I get angry. Like, please, there's, you'd have to be a spaceman to not, right? Yes. Then you meet Eckhart Tolle, and it's like the whispering. And, and just tell me about that experience, because I have an aversion to him. And, you know, again, we're all God's children. But it just, <laughs> that kind of thing, I think, can hurt, because it's the goal is not to never have things bother you. It's like what everything you've already talked about, the reactivity. So can you just delight me with your story in your book where you kind of make fun of him? Okay, so I have complicated feelings of, about Eckhart Tolle that have, that have um, kind of changed a little bit over time. But the the <laughs> if you've never heard of Eckhart Tolle, he's a mega best-selling self-help guru, German guy, kind of a diminutive elfin German man who um, his story is, this is his story, that um, he had a spiritual awakening in his 20s and then lived on park benches in the city of London for two years in a state of bliss. I I got skeptical by that story for many reasons, including the fact that they have winter in London. So I I don't know about, you know, whether that's true. Having said that, his books give a very incisive compelling description of the voice in the head being an asshole. He calls it your ego. Mm -hmm. So I was really intrigued when I first read his book. I read his book before I got interested in meditation, before I met the Dalai Lama. He was the first person, even before I heard of Dr. Mark Epstein, it was Eckhart Tolle who really pointed out this, this nattering voice that I have in my head. And that is part of, you know, the human situation. And so I, while I found so many things in his books to be, it's very, very strange, including the park bench story. I was intrigued to meet him and I went and met him. And the first question I asked is, what do you do about the voice in the head? And he said, take one conscious breath. And the voice in my head was like, what the fuck does that mean? Like, what? give me some something to do. And I asked him a million ways, what do you do about this? I understood the words he was using, just not the order in which he was using them. Like, I, I he didn't say anything comprehensible to me. And then I asked him, with the question I would later ask the Dalai Lama, who gave me a pretty sane answer to, I asked, do you ever get into a bad mood? And he said, no. Mm. He insisted that he's just, whatever happens, you know, I'd like, if I cut you off in traffic, he'd be like, yeah, be like a gust of wind. You know, I don't personalize it, et cetera, et cetera. Which sounds beautiful, but like, I was really very skeptical about it. And his whole presentation and his claims really put me off to him personally, although I was deeply intrigued by the diagnosis of yeah of the, the ego. Human I mean, that, that's that is yes. true, and that's great. Yeah, I over time, you know, here's the one. I've interviewed lots 
of sketchy people in my 30 years as a television journalist. Eckhart Tolle does not strike me as full of shit, though. So while I was incredulous, I did not get the sense that he was a snake oil salesman. And I don't know how to compute that. I have in my wanderings since I have met him throughout spiritual, the spiritual world, I have come across many descriptions of people who have big awakenings, sometimes with no training whatsoever. And they are just, the software has been upgraded. And I I can't tell you whether that's true because I have not experienced it myself. Yeah. But there are many claims of this in the contemplative literature. And so maybe that is what happened with Eckhart Tolle. You know, maybe. I just think it's it's a miracle you kept going and found something that worked for you because I think those kind of people, if we meet them first, it can be a turnoff in that it just seems uh, insurmountable. And uh, And so I try to, you know, with your podcast, and I think it's so important that you're putting voices out there that are saying, no, here is what you do. You know, you don't even have to ever have an awakening, like you say, 10% happier, a little less of an asshole. So as we wrap up, can you tell everybody all about the 10% happier? I mean, it's really a media company at this point, the app, which is amazing. I have the app. I love it. I just, uh, t- just go off about your podcast and your app, please. Well, well, I, I, I don't, I won't go too too deep into plugging, except to say that that I there's been a kind of a development in my own personal life. Um, I don't know when this is going to post, but I am leaving ABC News after having been there for 21 years because um, I really want to go full time on 10% Happier, and that I was, was wondering a, that. Yeah. So my final day will be the end of September. I don't know how I'm going to make it through my final day on the air, just because. You know, I'm really close to so many people there, and I've I've been, I just you know, I you're going to cry of, on air, and we'll put I it on YouTube cry. right next to your panic attack, and it'll be yes. a nice a full circle. Can't wait. You know, I'm not very emotional. It's one of the things I've been criticized for by many people, including my my wife. Yeah. Um, but I worry about whether I'm going to be hold, able to hold it together that morning. I think you don't hold it together. And because you need that advertisement go. for 10%. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Come on. Think about it. Let's, I, I, let's think I about the marketing. I thought you were going to say something, uh, you know, wholesome and gooey. But you were just nope. going right to the crass, which I love you for. Yeah, yeah, no, we're gonna we're gonna make some money with this ten percent, and <laughs> the way to advertise it is crying on air. Um, don't hold it together unless you you know don't want profits to soar. Now, so but but it's it's so helpful. I mean, you did this whole thing during the pandemic. Um, you, I mean, you just have the most amazing guests interviewing people about. I mean, you. I need you to talk about it because I'm I'm speechless. But you had a, a recent um, <laughs> block of episodes this past summer that were all about anxiety, and yes, it's just so helpful. We do a lot on anxiety, both on the podcast and on the app. Um, the we we did a special series of episodes over the summer on anxiety. We brought all sorts of experts in, both scientists and um, uh, meditation practitioners who are who have worked with anxiety in their own minds, uh, meditation teachers. That is. And we did a big course on the 10% Happier app called Taming Anxiety, where you, if you download the app, you can try this course. Um, and uh, we uh, we worked, again, with we usually combine uh, a scientist. Uh, in this case, we worked with um, a researcher and a clinician from Harvard who can teach you how to, you know, the scientifically validated techniques for dealing with anxiety. In fact, I have claustrophobia. So she and I got in an elevator and went up Ooh. and down ad nauseum until I stopped freaking out. And she was really helpful. So we pair somebody like that with a, you know, a deep meditation teacher who can give you guided practices. So the way it works is you get like a two, three minute fun video and it slides right into a guided audio meditation. And um, yeah, we just got it. We got a tremendous response to that because we're in the middle of you know, the pandemic. There's the pandemic. There's um, we've had what's often called a racial reckoning in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had um, political polarization. We got climate change. There's so much going on that is stressful. Uh, and I've just found that I've seen that the interest in what we do and what, you know, lots of other amazing people are doing in this space has skyrocketed. So um, I'm glad to see there's increased interest. I'm not happy about what's driving it. Exactly. It would be better if everyone was just curious and trying to stay on top of it instead of yes, you know, suffering. Exactly. Um, so yeah. last question. Um, I know you were worried when you first started meditating that you might lose your edge. Did Have you lost your edge? And is that good no. or bad if you have? 
or not? No, I mean, I don't think I, I don't think I've lost my edge. Uh, I, in fact, one of the things I'm trying to do is is lose more of my edge because mm. I, I have my eyes are bigger than my stomach. I can tend to say yes to more things than um, I can actually do. And that can make me really, really unpleasant to be around. It's one of my biggest, you know, flaws is I overextend myself. I, I've been working seven days a week for mm. 15 years. And mm. uh, that is no bueno. And that is why I decided to leave ABC News uh, because I, I needed to start following my own advice. Uh, but, but it's a challenge because even as I'm leaving ABC News, I've got other offers of things I could do. And do I say yes to them? How many things do I say yes to? And uh, I'm driven a lot by ambition, but also by, I love this stuff. And I really, I, I think it can help people. And so I'm this kind of mix of ambition and idealism and maybe some fear and greed under all of that and mm -hmm. insecurity. It's a whole interesting cocktail that I still work with, you know, and this is somebody who's 10, 11, 12 years into meditation. It doesn't make all that stuff go away. What it does do is create a fertile ground for working on it more sanely. And that's what I recommend to people. And yeah, maybe you'll hit Eckhart Tolle's status at some point. God bless. Mm -hmm. I mean, hope you do. But if you just want to have a marginally but steadily increasing level of sanity, this is a terrific modality. I love it. Dan, thank you so much. This has been a joy. You don't say no to Jim Kirkman. I mean, come on. I, I, I see how <laughs> tough you can be on Twitter. I'm not I'm messing with you. I'm a tough one. Yes. <laughs> that is my talk with Dan Harris. Now, let's just do some takeaways. Next time you're having a panic attack, notice what's going on. It does start in your body first, but then your mind starts to freak out. It's a vicious cycle, as Dan calls it, mutiny mode. The more your mind freaks, your body freaks worse. It's fear on steroids. It's our fight or flight response being triggered in a completely inappropriate circumstance, but you are not dying. Nobody has ever died from a panic attack. And no, you're not the first one that's going to die of a panic attack. You're not dying. If there's anything you can take away from this entire season of the Anxiety Bites podcast, you're not dying. Number two, do not do cocaine. It's not going to help with anything in your life. No drugs, everybody. No street drugs. Uh, the book that Dan mentioned that was the first book that really opened his eyes, if you need that repeated, it's called Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart by Dr. Mark Epstein, E-P-S-T-E-I-N. When your mind is racing, it's known as the monkey mind. It's leaping all over the place, but you can get it to a place by practicing mindfulness, where your monkey mind doesn't own you. If you don't notice what's happening in your mind, your thoughts are like tiny little dictators that you end up acting out reflexively and rather unconsciously. You don't have to be a Buddhist to meditate or practice mindfulness or even practice some of the tenets of Buddhism that dovetail so well with modern day psychology. If the word mindfulness doesn't work for you, maybe another way to think of it is self-awareness. It's just like the way that Dan was able to label the voice in his head as an asshole. Mindfulness, self-awareness, it's a way of seeing what's happening between your ears without taking the bait and acting on your thoughts. This is all scientifically proven. The brains of people who meditate look different. It shows up in brain scans and meditation positively affects the areas of focus and stress and increases compassion. And lastly, the factory settings of our brain are not unalterable. You can do this. Anxiety bites, but you're in control. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, 
and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.